Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are talking about Yemen. We are seeing a humanitarian catastrophe unfold in Hodeidah, which many people say is the worst this century, and yet most of the world's attention has not really been mobilized by this uh, catastrophe. And the country finds itself caught in the midst of a regional conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which uh, has been spreading like wildfire across many of the countries of the region. We've seen it uh, in Syria, in Iraq, in uh, Kuwait, in Bahrain, in Lebanon, and uh, in the bloodiest way, uh, it is becoming a lived reality for millions of people within Yemen. To help us make sense both of the short-term situation in Yemen at the moment and the wider regional implications. I have an all-star cast. We have Adam Barron, who is a visiting fellow at ECFR's Middle East and North Africa program, who's been working for us on Yemen for uh, many years now and has recently written a new paper called The Marib Paradox, How One Province Succeeds in the Midst of Yemen's War. Um, And also down the line, we have Julian Barnes-Dacey, the head of ECFR's Middle East and North Africa program, who uh, has worked a lot on the regional conflicts, particularly around Syria. And uh, returning again to the podcast is Ellie Geremiah, senior policy fellow at ECFR's MENA program, who is looking at things more through an Iranian prism. So why don't we start with you, Adam? Uh, do you want to tell us what the latest is in, in Yemen? And then uh, we can look more uh, broadly at some of the outside players and how they uh, see the situation developing. Sure. I guess the key story in Yemen uh, in recent weeks is the escalation of the ongoing offensive on the Red Sea coast, which is now focusing on Hudaydah, which is Yemen's arguably Yemen's most important port city. Uh, Hudaydah has been under the control of the Houthis since roughly, uh, I would say, like fall 2014. Uh, at this moment, it is now um, the last port city under their control. Um, and this is something that has really left Hudaydah in longstanding in the crosshairs of uh, the Saudi-led coalition. Uh, you've had repeated discussions of there potentially being a, an offensive in Hudaydah, um, what's different this time is it's actually for real. Uh, so you've had a kind of infusion of Emirati military support, um, increasing troops going in. Uh, so far, there's been modest but significant gains. As of this morning, uh, the Houthis lost control of Hudaydah's sprawling airport. Adam, before you get too deeply into the weeds of the latest things, for people who haven't been following the crisis um, uh, closely, do you want to explain what the two coalitions are and where they come from and how they fit into this bigger sectarian war in the region? So Yemen itself has been the scene of an ongoing civil war for roughly three, if not more, years now. Uh, In many ways, this is something that's quite locally rooted. That being said, um, there are elements to it that have sort of put Yemen in the crosshairs of, uh, you can say, regional power dynamics. 
So there's effectively two wider uh, coalitions fighting right now. Um, or at least at the start of the war, you had the Houthis who are receiving support from Iran, uh, in addition to the backers of former President Ali Abdullah Saleh. On the opposite end, you had the internationally recognized government, but then also a diverse grouping of different forces that were opposed to the Houthis for one reason or another. So you had, for example, southern secessionists who may not have the fondest feelings about Hadi, uh, but at the same time, you know, see the Houthis as the, as the more important enemy. Uh, you had, for example, a variety of tribal forces uh, that took up arms for the Houthis, seeing them as a threat. Uh, for the start or first few years of the war, uh, these coalitions were somewhat steady. Uh, that being said, last December, you saw the dramatic collapse of this alliance, uh, which took place in a conflagration that brought urban warfare to Sana'a. It ended with the dramatic death of Ali Abdullah Saleh at the hands of the Houthis. And that sort of brought a number of key figures that were fighting with Salah over to the opposite side. So now you have a situation where even in the Hudayda offensive, a lot of the people, or at least a significant uh, portion of them, were actually on the opposite side of this conflict uh, just one year ago. Um, so it's a testament to the rather fractious nature of a lot of these alliances. In addition to the collapse of the Houthi-Salah alliance, You've also had these fluctuating tensions between the internationally recognized Yemeni government and uh, the southern, uh, largely secessionist, or at least separatist in some form, forces uh, that are quite powerful in many areas of the south, including in uh, the city of Aden, which the internationally recognized Yemeni government currently casts as its temporary capital. So effectively, you have one larger conflict, but then a great degree of tensions under this wider conflict. Um, in some sense, the battle for Hudaydah has helped to allow different sides to kind of push this aside. So you had uh, a meeting between uh, Yemeni President Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi and uh, Mohammed bin Zayed and other Emirati leadership in Abu Dhabi, uh, which sort of led to at least the, an amelioration of their long tense relations. Uh, and then you've also seen a widespread sort of support from the anti-Houthi side coming to this offensive. Uh, that being said, there's still the question of what would happen, you know, on, on day two. But at least for now, it seems that, you know, everyone is sort of united behind uh, this offensive on the Yemeni government side in one form or another. So, Julian, do you want to explain a bit more about the thinking behind this uh, offensive? I mean, the Saudi uh, crown prince... Um, Mohammed bin Salman has seen this as a kind of personal uh, project from the beginning. He, he was uh, behind a lot of the stepping up of Saudi activism throughout the Middle East, but this is one of the signature conflicts that he, he's got involved with. Um, what, what's the, how does the situation look from, from Saudi Arabia and what's driving this coalition? Well, from the from a Saudi perspective, the the Houthi control of, of of parts in of Yemen is seen as a direct existential threat. This is a a rebel group that they deem to be supported in some measure by Iran, uh, which has been firing missiles, uh, ballistic missiles, with alleged Iranian support onto Saudi Arabia, coming close to 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 Riyadh on occasions. Um, and effectively, 
um, this is seen as 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 a direct security threat on it on its southern border, as compared to to more distant conflicts in Syria and Lebanon, which have actually been downgraded in importance as the Lebanese conflict has has dragged on. Um, that being said, I think what's quite interesting is that much of what is now unfolding in in, in Yemen, um, particularly this offensive in Hodeida, um, seems and, and Adam can can address some of the details, but seems to be very much driven by the Emiratis uh, more than the Saudis. I think the Saudis. Uh, have been more cautious in pushing this offensive forward. forward. They are wary of the international impact that a humanitarian crisis could have um, on on their image at a time when it's already faltering, um, given the long-standing conflict, given their inability to to, to drive it towards a solution. But it's really the Emiratis who have been very gung-ho, resisting any external pressure um, to pull back and essentially saying the Houthis have not played ball as we want them to, um, and now it's time for us to drive this towards uh, uh, or, or drive it militarily uh, to force the Houthis on a back foot and, and to force them into submission. And from from an Iranian perspective, Eli, I mean the Houthis are uh, a Zaidi sect, predominantly led by and composed of, of Shia. Um, their slogan, I think their flag has a famous uh, slogan on it, which is, God is the greatest, death to America, death to Israel, curse on the Jews, victory to Islam. Um, Are they the sort of functional equivalent of of Hezbollah in in other factions? I mean, how uh, does the Iranian uh, Houthi relationship play out? How is it organized? What kind of levels of support do they enjoy from the Iranian state and from the uh, IRGC? Well, Mark, I'm not going to go into the intricates of of how the Houthis function. I think Adam will know that far better than I do. But in terms of how the group is perceived inside Tehran, um, I think that the relationship um, is very different to, for example, the relationship that Iran has formed with Hezbollah in Lebanon or um, other non-state actors operating in in Iraq uh, or Syria, for example. Uh, With the the Houthis, at least um, if we look at um, the general intelligence that's provided by some of the Western governments, um, the relationship is far from a command and control structure um, that you may see with some other um, non-state actors that Iran supports and backs in the region. Um, What we have also to go on in terms of more concrete facts um, from international bodies is a UN report that was made public earlier this year, uh, which essentially outlined that Iran um, is providing a certain degree of logistical and military support um, to the Houthis. And, um, and, and here, uh, what has become um, the main issue of debate in the international forum is to what extent Iran is supplying technology and equipment and parts that have advanced Houthi missile capabilities um, beyond those that existed uh, prior to, to, to this um, uh, intervention uh, starting um, uh, with kind of Russian and Soviet um, supplied uh, missiles um, to Yemen, to what extent Iran has helped to advance the technology of these missiles in ways that are a direct harm um, to Saudi Arabia and some other regional actors. And um, the, 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 the prevailing assessment, at least in the West, is that Iran is supporting um, in in one fashion or another 
um, the Houthis in, in this quest um, of advancing its rocket and missile facilities. Um, but I think from, at least when you speak to, to officials inside Iran, um, the sense you get is that the relationship with the Houthis um, is quite minimal um, in terms of relations um, across the board, but it's been quite effective uh, at essentially bogging down Iran's regional rivals, Saudi Arabia and to an extent UAE, in this long prolonged war, which was, let's remember, at the beginning of, of um, March 2015, I believe, was meant to take several weeks, according to Saudi assessment, and now we're talking years. It's managed to also really um, hamper the, the, the international image um, of the Saudi-led coalition, uh, given the humanitarian costs. And it's also um, created a distraction, essentially, um, from, some of, uh, uh, from some of Saudi's um, actions in Syria, which is a conflict where Iran has a lot of vested interests and resources um, in ways that have made it slightly easier for Iran to manage that conflict going forward. So, Adam, um, we've gone uh, through quite a lot of the big picture questions behind this, but can you tell us a bit more about what's driving this humanitarian catastrophe at the moment and um, what attempts are being made to, to mediate it and to, 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 to de-escalate the conflict? I mean, with regards to the humanitarian crisis, I guess it's, it's multifaceted. One, Yemen was already in a humanitarian crisis or on the verge of a humanitarian crisis before this conflict started. Uh, I looked up the other day, you know, an article I wrote in 2012 talking that I reported from Hudaydah talking about, uh, you know, the warnings regarding a humanitarian crisis. So this isn't new. Obviously, the conflict has, has greatly exacerbated it. Uh, and on the one hand, there are the cases of blockages to ports, most notably Hudaydah. Uh, but above all, the key thing is Yemen's economy has effectively collapsed. Um, when you have a situation where 70, 80% of the country is in need of aid, this is a crisis that cannot be solved, I would say, by, by aid. There's no amount of aid that will, that will resolve this. It's something that will really only, only come to an end with the, with the end of the conflict. And even then, uh, the holdover, the hangover, perhaps to say, from this conflict, and particularly from the humanitarian crisis, will, will loom over Yemen for at least a generation, maybe more. And what, to what extent is the crisis a, a result of specific strategies by the UAE, by the Saudis? I mean, is this um, uh, part of the strategy or is it a byproduct of it? I would say it's a byproduct of the war more than, um, more than an essential part of the strategy itself. Um, I think one of the things that I've noticed in a lot of discussions is there's so much focus on aid access and things like that, which is, of course, key. But it's important to remember that, you know, a lot of this is just rooted by the collapse of Yemen's private sector. Um, and in, in addition to that, the fact that Yemen's banking system has, you know, in part due to the movement of the central bank, in part due to the reluctance of, um, of key officials to pay salaries in areas controlled by the Houthis, you're looking at a situation where a huge numbers of Yemeni homes, probably the majority of Yemeni homes, have lost their source of income. So this is something that's that's deeper than the war. This is uh, a humanitarian crisis that is affecting parts of the country uh, that are are far from conflict lines. 
And I think the severity of this is something that may well haunt Yemen to an even greater extent than the direct fallout from the conflict itself. I mean, what's striking at this is a few months ago when people were looking around at all the different conflicts in the region, um, the one area where there was some hope um, was Yemen. People talked about how there was a, an impressive um, uh, official, Martin Griffith, who'd been appointed for, for the United Nations to try and uh, lead the talks and get the different factions together. The Iranians seem to be willing to talk to Western governments about that in a way that they weren't willing to talk about other regional conflicts. So w what's gone wrong since then? I mean, if you ask uh, the coalition, they see this particularly a lot of the key Emirati spokespeople frame this Hudaydah offensive as something that in their view will actually help pave the way for for talks. They say that the Houthis haven't taken the talk seriously. Um, they say that this will, the loss of Hudaydah will sort of take them down from thinking that they have the upper hand and that this will potentially push them to make uh, more substantial concessions. Uh, that being said, uh, regardless of whether that ends up being something that happens in, in the medium to longer run, it's quite, uh, it's quite clear that, at least for the time being, it's, it's hard to imagine peace negotiations happening anytime soon. Uh, you know, Martin Griffiths came in being prepared to pave the way for peace talks. Instead, he's been engaging in shuttle diplomacy to try to negotiate a very specific deal on Hudeda uh, for, for the past two or three weeks, if not more. Uh, so, in a way, he's been somewhat distracted from the work that I think he was aiming to do. I mean, let's face it, Yemen isn't something, this crisis has gone on for so long, and, you know, it has taken so many new forms, there have been so many divisions, so many new facts created on the ground. It's hard to imagine one single peace deal, one single peace process, uh, resolving, you know, the various conflicts racking the country at this point. That being said, I mean, the key task, I would say, facing Griffiths is putting into place some sort of uh, de-escalation process that can start to create the space for meaningful negotiations to happen at this point. So, Julian, it sounds like you wanted to come in. No, I wanted to say that from, from the perspective of, of someone who's been watching Syria for, for, for several years now, it's a very, very eerily depressing outlook with, with, with lots of resemblances. On the one hand, the sense of... Um, uh, state collapse and the multifaceted nature of the conflict, the localization, the multiple actors, which of course makes the political process so hard to, to, to move forward, but also this sense which you get at the moment, and, and I think that you're particularly hearing this from the Emirati perspective, that this is the battle that will change the, the situation. This is the battle that will finally kind of represent that inflection point that, that, that moves the Houthis towards a political process, a compromise. And in a sense, it, 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 it it resembles so much of the language on, that we've heard from, from Syria, for, for, from both sides of the conflict for so long, that, that it was just a question of that, 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 that one extra assertion of might that would force the other, the other side to the table, when at base so much of what is driving this um, is about zero-sum ambitions, is about an unwillingness to compromise, 
And the moment you, you, you impose a, a military victory or, or, or defeat on one side, um, in a sense that only serves to harden uh, respective positionings on both sides. So I think that while the, the Emiratis may be saying that, that they see this as the avenue to, to, towards the peace process, you can well imagine that if they do succeed in seizing uh, Hudaydah and pushing the Houthis back, that they will then say, hang on a second, this is our moment to really squeeze the Houthis and to really impose a solution on them. Likewise with the Houthis, that they will see, in a sense, that any, any defeat that may be imposed on them in Hudaydah um, as a reason and, and, and a, and a, and a and creating an urgency to push back to create new leverage on their own perspective. So you have this continued cycle of, of, of attempts to impose the right balance, which ultimately is futile, and which ultimately continues to drive a cycle of escalation and conflict, um, which drives, drives continued conflict rather than the stated aims of a political process. Mark, can I maybe just add something on the, from the European dimension to this, which is that, you know, I think where the Europeans saw an avenue to contribute to um, pushing towards a political process in light of the kind of Trumpian world dynamics around um, the regional actors um, was to essentially um, launch a series of discussions with Iran on the issue of Yemen. And it was hoped that, um, you know, in the latest rounds of discussions that there could be a possible agreement reached on a um, at least some localized ceasefires over the month of Ramadan, which has just finished last week. Um, and that, I think, um, was responded to positively um, from Iran's side, but it really showcased, I think, some of the real challenges um, for European actors to influence um, their regional partners, many of whom are, are, are part of this coalition, um, to actually come towards, um, you know, pressing for, for, for the political talks. Um, and, you know, as Julian mentioned, there is this sense that, um, you know, the next battle will be the battle that will make the conditions more favorable for, for a, a negotiated settlements. But I guess, you know, where we are today that is that we didn't have a ceasefire, but actually things got worse with the acceleration of, of the offensive on Hodeida. I, I guess my question uh, for Adam particularly is, you know, to what extent um, can this be a success from the eyes of the coalition? And where, where do you see, Adam, for example, the European countries like France or the UK who are supporting um, the coalition efforts, how are they positioning themselves, particularly amidst uh, reports that may be new or not, it was at least new to me, that there is now French special forces present on the ground with the UAE uh, in Yemen. So uh, I guess those are some areas where we need more clarity on the European position. Do you want to answer that, Adam? I mean... In a lot of ways, yeah, the argument that the next battle is going to be the battle that's the really significant one is one you hear quite often in Yemen. Uh, I often joke that every mountain in Yemen is a strategic mountain because anytime anyone ever captures a mountain, they always refer to the strategic mountain. That being said, if there is one sort of city that could be captured and could be treated as the one that could be a potential game changer or shift, I would say it would be Hudaydah. Uh, for Two reasons. One, on the coalition's side, one of their key concerns in any uh, negotiation process would be making sure that the Houthis do not have access to any port. Uh, at the same time, this would be something that the Houthis are quite unlikely to agree to at the negotiating table. 
That being said, this provides them a way of establishing that factor on the ground that potentially gives them more flexibility when it comes to talks. Second, once you get Hudeda, and then perhaps Taiz, which is another uh, Yemen's third largest city, which has been the uh, the center of ongoing fighting and is, is indeed under siege by the Houthis until now. Once you get maybe these two cities, it starts getting really, really rough. Um, the memory of Yemen's 1960s civil war is is still strong in in the region, particularly among among many militaries, and I would say. That there is, I think, an awareness from a lot of elements of the coalition and to an even greater extent, an awareness from the key sort of Western backers of the coalition that a fight in the Yemeni highlands, you know, a fight for Sana'a, a fight for those areas uh, is is not in anyone's interest. Uh, that it would be something that would be, you know, very destructive and a bloodbath and perhaps quite inconclusive. After all, at least until now, you haven't really seen uh, the fight be taken to the Houthis, you know, true sort of strongholds. So those are the two kind of things that make me think that there is a potential that this could be, um, could provide some sort of shift. And what could, what could drive that in the short term? I mean, how's, how's that going to work? I would say this is more a medium term thing uh, because it takes Hudeda off the table which makes the coalition feel more comfortable with talks. And then two, just the sheer, uh, you know, reluctance of most to really engage in a battle in the mountains of Yemen. I mean, you can go back, you know, thousands, 2000 years of history of lessons uh, about why those battles tend to uh, be far more difficult than anyone really anticipates. Uh, that being said, it's hard for me to imagine the Houthis, you know, losing Hudeda and coming to the negotiating table in, in the short term or even medium term future. Uh, there's going to have to be a lot of trust building. There's going to have to be a lot of outreach. And I think that is one thing uh, that Europe can potentially do, uh, the EU particularly, and to a similar extent, perhaps Germany and the Netherlands are you know, a few of the only countries that have decent channels open with all sides. So there is the chance and, you know, an opportunity for Europe to really come in uh, and potentially facilitate a lot of the trust building that's going to be necessary to get everybody back to the political table. So, Julian, do you think that there's any chance that they might do that? Well, I mean, it, it, as Adam says, I think it's a longer term process. And I think the prospects of something happening in, in the immediate term are, are, are fairly unlikely. I, I mean, Adam makes a good case on why data may be different. Um, at the same time, I'm I'm, I'm very wary um, of of the, the the ways the polarization that these conflicts feed on the ground and the manner in which that does shut down the avenues for trust building and, and constructive engagement um, that, that Adam identified as being necessary. I'm also wary of the fact that Yemen um, remains um, a, a place where the regional conflict will continue to, to unfold. And up until now, it's been an easier place for the Iranians um, to poke the Saudis um, in a continued fashion, whether 
um, the eventual capture of Hudaydu and the closure of the ports will change that dynamic. I'm not sure, but I think there's a there's a real um, challenge to to address. And if you put that to the backdrop of state collapse and the fragmentation of Yemen, um, it, it's a very hard sell. I think Martin Griffiths is is a really excellent um, envoy, very kind of creative and and I think um, non conventional, perhaps in, in in some of his pro- approaches. And he's been speaking to the Houthis, and there's been a a lot of engagement across the board. So that that, that shows a, a special envoy who I think is, is doing the right thing and, and, and trying to move a process forward. But it will be extremely challenging um, to this backdrop. And what about for Iran, Ellie? I mean, how does this fit into the wider discussion with, with uh, Iran and the West? Could this be a way for Iran to build some trust by um, uh, putting pressure on the Houthi to... Well, look, I think if you, if you speak to the Iranians, um, their number one foreign policy priority right now is obviously um, the nuclear deal. And every other issue is, is basically now, whether we like it or not, um, linked to that. And so if, if, for example, in six months' time, um, we're facing a gradual or total immediate collapse of the nuclear agreement, I think that you'll find an Iran that is much less um, willing uh, to, to engage, particularly Western actors, on any of the regional conflict issues. And what we've seen, at least since, since January, is an openness by Iran to take talks regarding Yemen quite seriously. Um, when you have readouts from European officials uh, from these talks, they, they do um, underscore that the, that the talks are constructive and progressing. Um, but I think the, 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 the biggest issue now, I think, facing Yemen, at least from the European side, isn't so much whether they can get Iran on board to put pressure on, on the Houthis, because I think they, they will if they, if they choose to do so. Um, but I think the biggest part of the question is, can we uh, in Europe guarantee um, that we can get um, our regional partners to come to the negotiating table? And I think that has been a real challenge in Europe. Maybe we should end with that. I mean, what would uh, be interesting to hear from all three of you what you think we could do which would encourage them to do that. I think in, to some extent, trust building is, is quite key. Uh, you particularly have, I mean, this is not just internally, this is externally as well. Um, Europe has often been divided on Yemen and you've particularly seen that with the Hudaydah offensive. Uh, and then this is without even dealing with, with the, the issue of where the U.S. has been. But there is that perception uh, among many uh, Saudi and Emirati officials uh, that Europe is either coddling the Houthis or, uh, you know, doesn't understand the threat to the Houthis and, and those kinds of issues. Um, and I think rather, regardless of whether or not we agree with that, that's still something that needs to be factored in. Uh, if there's going to be some sort of, you know, substantive diplomatic track. Uh, you know, I think a lot of a lot of the war in Yemen is a war of perceptions and kind of understanding these various perceptions, understanding where different people sit and really taking that into account is going to be crucial towards building some sort of uh, settlement and for that matter, some sort of transitional process. But Adam, does that distrust on, on or, or concern on perceptions of what Europeans are doing, is that because of the fact that there, there has been a spotlight put on the, for example, the humanitarian consequences of the conflict? Um, and, you know, what, what else are, are the Saudis or the Emiratis looking for in terms of support 
um, from key countries in this conflict to make them more susceptible to listening um, to their European counterparts. I mean, I think what you've heard from a few officials is sort of the sense that they just don't understand that, you know, the Europeans do not understand uh, the threat the Houthis pose to, um, to, to the wider region. Uh, but why do you think... So I still don't really understand why you think that's a question about trust. I think, isn't it that they just want to win and, and that they care more about winning and having peace on their terms than they do about the suffering of, of, of Yemenis? What, what's that got to do with trust? I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that. At the end of the day, I think the Saudis are aware that Yemen's going to have to be their neighbor. Um, you know, they can't choose their neighbors and, and they're stuck with Yemen. So regardless of the intensity of this conflict and a lot of what's happened, there is that kind of back of the head, you know, awareness that at some point there's going to have to be some sort of reconciliation, rebuilding, and stabilization process. And I've heard the same sort of stuff even from a lot of um, a lot of people on the other side uh, regarding their views on the Saudis as, as well. Um, but I think the key thing, I really think the key thing that Europe can do is help to, one, you know, build bridges externally, and two, help to use its position to build bridges uh, internally. And thankfully, you have had some efforts uh, some efforts ongoing in that, but I think they, they should be bolstered. But Mark, I think you do raise an important point, and it's not just about Yemen, it's the story of the tragedy of the, of the region for the past kind of seven years now, which is uh, the regional actors, and frankly, a lot of local armed actors who have entirely sidelined the interests of local populations for, for either regional or, or even national strategic ambitions. Um, and they have, uh, uh, you know, it, it is uh, the populations of the Arab world who are paying the, 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 the biggest price here. And I think often uh, we lose sight of that. And that's something that, that Europeans lose sight of in terms of their respective engagement with different par parties and their desire to maintain strategic relationships with, with key alliances, even as the, 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 the region does head down this devastating cycle and uh, path towards more and more destruction. And, but what do you think one could do to change that? Or is it basically the, the fact that Europeans have decided they want to have a strategic relationship with Saudi Arabia makes it impossible to exercise any... Well, I mean, let's not overstate what the Europeans can do here. This is, this is a, a, a conflict that is driven um, by, by domestic and a whole host of domestic actors, by regional actors. They all have their fierce interests. They're all pushing forward. Um, and the Europeans don't have firm le leverage to try and change the direction. Now, I do think the Europeans could be trying to do more um, in trying to push uh, the different sides um, towards, a di towards a different track. I mean, in part, that would need a different kind of engagement with both the Houthis and the Iranians, the Emiratis, the Saudis. I mean, it would need uh, a, a, an approach to the region, um, which is, I think, effectively based on some form of de-escalation, on some kind of um, compromise bed based on, 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 on power sharing, uh, probably a, a push towards decentralization, and trying to integrate that into the thinking of, of, of local actors. But that is something that is going to take a long time to sell. That is something that is going to need a lot of effort, a 
lot of political commitment and, frankly, economic resources to back that. I mean, if you're going to talk about power sharing in a localized fashion, whether it be in Yemen or in Syria and elsewhere, you're going to have to inject the resources to make that work so that you don't just fuel a new cycle of, of failed states that eventually fall and, and collapse into, into new conflicts. So there's a level of, of political and economic investment that Europeans continue to avoid. Um, and with that then would come a, a greater willingness to, 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 to take a more, um, or should I say, a stronger kind of political positioning vis-a-vis both sides of the conflict to try and shepherd them um, towards necessary compromises. Maybe I can just add two quick points, which is one, um, more in terms of the, the, the immediate, medium-term conflict de-escalation mechanisms you know, one one of the discussions uh, that the Europeans are pressing Iran on and should continue to is to what extent can this issue of kind of um, missile launches and rocket launches across the border from Yemen in, in, into Saudi Arabia uh, be minimized to the lowest possible and, and you know, hopefully um, eliminated altogether. And I think that that's one area where the Europeans can through their political engagement with all sides, try and push on, and also you know, in terms of support to the to the UN process that's ongoing with regards to this is this issue. Another track that at least certain governments have been also pushing at the at the UN Security Council level has been this idea of naming and shaming um, actors involved with the Yemen conflict um, to essentially build, and I think this should be done on all fronts regarding those who are um, contributing to the conflict uh, in Yemen, um, to to expand and, and press them on the international stage for explanations or a change in their behavior on that front. And then I think, um, and the, Finally, one of the areas, and this is the elephant in the room that we haven't mentioned yet, but it is an area that some European governments have already publicly come out on, uh, which is the issue of arms sales um, to parties in the conflict, um, the most kind of high profile being Germany here. Um, and I think that this is an area of leverage that's not really discussed, but it is one that the Europeans do have. And I think depending on how the assault on Hodeida uh, rolls out, say in the coming six weeks to two months, I think that may be a debate that is raised more increasingly in the, in the European public discourse at least. But do you think that's real leverage? I mean, um, I suppose most uh, countries would say that if we stop selling weapons to the Southeast, then uh, others will just step in and take those contracts. Sure, it might be less, maybe leverage is, is um, I think there is some leverage, uh, particularly in terms of um, the, the assistance, military assistance or information sharing that certain governments in Europe are providing to the coalition regarding um, their support to, to the coalition in the conflict. I think that there is, there is some utility, but you're right. The, the, particularly, for example, the US can step in and, and fill those shoes. But I think um, if you're talking about um, trying um, not to contribute to fueling the conflict further, that is definitely one avenue for consideration. Okay. Um, do you have a last thing you want to add to the discussion, Julian or Adam? No, I mean, unfortunately, it, it does seem like the conflict is headed for, for escalation, more tragedy. That being said, um, I guess to plug the paper, um, there are opportunities, not just for stabilization, but for potential, uh, you know, Gulf European collaboration with regards to stabilization. And then that's going to be one thing that I think there's already opportunities for that in areas like Madib and to a lesser extent in Hadramalt, 
but potentially depending on the way the Hudeda offensive goes, um, this could be another opportunity for that as well. Um, although hopefully the bloodshed will be minimized. Okay, well, uh, on that slightly more hopeful note, we'll bring this discussion to an end. And I do recommend Adam's paper, The Marib Paradox, How One Province Succeed in the Midst of Yemen's War. Um, if you want to look for, for some hope out of this very, very uh, dark situation. Um, we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Uh, Adam, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Uh, so I'd say two books. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Marika Brandt's uh, book on the Houthis, which is probably the best, um, I would say at this point, the definitive book on, on the Houthi movement. In addition to that, I've been trying to get my hands on a copy of Yemen, the Unknown War uh, by Dana Adam Schmidt, uh, which is actually the one of the few uh, accounts of Yemen's 1960s civil war uh, written by a foreign journalist. The continuous parallels between uh, the civil war in the 60s and, and the ongoing conflict uh, kind of underline the fact that I need to, to get back to reading up. What about you, Ellie? Um, yeah, so I'm going to recommend, um, it's actually a photojournal book uh, by Paula Breinstein, which is called Afghanistan Between Hope and Fear. And it is um, talking about tragic conflicts that are being prolonged. This is definitely one of them. But there are just some incredibly... Um, beautiful and also heartbreaking photos and, and stories about um, daily life in Afghanistan 16 years on um, from the 2001 invasion. And it is, um, I, th I think it's, it's just spectacularly done and I would highly recommend it. What about you, Julian? I'd, um, I've got to plug a book by um, uh, a great journalist, um, Rania Abu Zaid, No Turning Back. Um, it's a it's a chronicle, a, a journalistic chronicle of, of the war in Syria, and Rania is really um, has been the most m m most sensitive, perceptive um, uh, journalist covering the conflict for for several years now, going in and out of places that no one else has been, telling the stories from on the ground with a with a very humane perspective that that's often missed. So um, it's a great book for for it's a heartbreaking book, but it's a, it, it's a book that that, that peels away the. The, the kind of the, the layers of geopolitics and strategy and, and, and the kind of alienation that one almost feels with a conflict to, to tell it from the ground. Okay, well, on that uh, note, I would uh, urge you all to go to our website, www.ecfr.eu slash podcast, where we'll put links to all of these publications. And if you want to tweet or write about the episode on your Facebook pages, that would be much appreciated. But most appreciated because it drives many people to listen to the podcast is going to iTunes uh, or whatever platform you are using to listen to us on and give us a rating and even better a review um, and then other people will find out about it but for now from Adam Barron from Ellie Garamaya Julian Barnes-Dacey and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye the researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hachenbrosch and our editor is Katerina Butel-Atzinaro. Mm -hmm.